0: Welcome to the Paranormal States of America. I'm your host, John Devine, and on this episode, we're taking our first look at UFOs in the United States. Humans have always had an eye on the sky. We've used the sun to tell time and used the stars to navigate across the sea. We see the night sky as a window to our past and our future. But as much as we've used the sky as a tool, we've also looked up with one constant question. Is there anyone else out there? Hundreds of thousands of reports of strange lights and objects in the sky from all over the world give believers proof that not only is there life beyond Earth, but that we have been visited from another world. I'm not going to take a look at every report of strange lights in the sky because that would be a never-ending list, but sightings of strange light formations and sightings with descriptions of actual flying craft are going to be my primary focus. Unlike most paranormal activity, the US government has actually undertaken several official efforts to document and explain UFO sightings. The most well-known of these efforts was Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book was a United States Air Force program that, from 1952 to 1969, investigated reports of UFOs. Over 12,000 case files were opened in in that 17-year time frame. 700 of those cases remained unsolved after the program ended. Thirteen of those unsolved cases took place in Virginia. This episode will not list every single unsolved Project Blue Book case, but I will be taking a look at the ones with the most documentation. I'll also be looking at the recent US Navy UFO reports and videos since some of those were cited off the Virginia coast by Virginia-based Navy pilots. So without further ado, let's find out what people have seen in the skies around Virginia. The first case we'll take a look at took place over Mount Vernon in Northern Virginia. Mount Vernon is 20 miles south of Washington, D.C., 5 miles from the Fort Belvoir Army Base. On May 29, 1950, Captain Willis T. Sperry, a pilot for American Airlines, saw a UFO in the area. In a letter published in the September 1950 issue of Flying Magazine, Sperry detailed his experience. I will read the letter so that you can hear his encounter in his own words. Until the evening of May 29th, I was definitely a skeptic as far as strange flying objects were concerned as I had never seen anything that could only be referred to as an unexplainable reality. I was flying American Airlines DC-6 flight number 49 New York to San Francisco with stops at Washington, Nashville, and Tulsa. We had departed from Washington at 915 Eastern Standard Time bound for Nashville. Visibility was excellent, 50 miles at least. We were at 7,500 feet, climbing to 18,000, about 30 miles out of Washington, when First Officer Bill Gates yelled, Hey, what's that? I was facing the rear flight deck, getting a flight map, and when I looked up, I saw coming towards us, at our level, a brilliant, diffused, bluish light of fluorescent type. I would say it was 25 times the magnitude of the brightest star. Momentarily, it seemed to stop, possibly five seconds, and changed its course to parallel us on the left, still at the same altitude as it passed between us and the full moon. Three of us, Gates, flight engineer Robert Arnholt, also a pilot, and I got a good look at it. Silhouetted against the moon, it appeared to be the shape of a torpedo or submarine, except there were no protruding fins or external structure of any kind. It appeared to be a perfectly streamlined object of dark metallic color, but at night it could have been pink or any other color and looked the same. In comparing the speed of this object with jet aircraft, which I observed many times at close range, I would say without a doubt that the speed of the object was far beyond the limits of any known aircraft speeds that we know. In comparison, the speed was fantastic. As described in my sketch below, the entire flight path as observed from the cockpit until it passed out of sight into the east was approximately only one minute. When the object first appeared coming toward us, I started to turn to the right. Then when it changed its course to parallel us, I started turning to the left so as to be able to follow its path. Even so, it went to the rear of the plane, circled around to the right far enough so that the first officer saw it on his side before reversing direction and going out of sight to the east. I then called the Washington Control Tower and asked them if they were able to pick up the object on the radar scope. After several minutes, Operator Barnes radioed that they were unable to find any trace of it. I talked to several passengers after the incident, but only one told me that he had seen an extremely bright light passing the left side of the ship. Before he could get a good look at it, the object had passed out of his sight. Since this incident, I have received countless letters and phone calls regarding saucers and a number of serious discussions with my fellow pilots in contrast to the ribbing I expected. Signed, Willis T. Sperry, Captain, American Airlines, Tulsa, Oklahoma. That closing paragraph makes me wonder how many other pilots have seen things but decided not to say anything for fear of being ridiculed by their peers. July 1952 was a busy time for UFO sightings in Virginia. On July 14, 1952, in the area of Langley Air Force Base in the southeastern corner of the state, two pilots reported seeing a fleet of UFOs. At 9.12 p.m., a DC-4 Pan-American aircraft was flying south, approaching Norfolk, Virginia, on its way to Miami, Florida. The two pilots, William Nash and William Fortenberry, were quite experienced, with thousands of hours of flight time between them. At an altitude of 9,000 feet a few miles from Newport News, a red glow appeared ahead of the aircraft. Six huge disc-shaped objects were coming toward them, but at a lower altitude, approximately 2,000 feet. The discs were flat with an orange, red-hot metal glow. The discs were estimated to be 100 feet in diameter. The objects were moving in a diagonal line. Apparently, upon sighting the DC-4, the lead disc abruptly slowed, its orange glow dimming. The next two objects wobbled as if unprepared for the slowdown. Then, all six discs flipped up on edge, allowing the pilots to estimate them at 15 feet thick. The objects made a sudden and dramatic course correction of approximately 150 degrees and streaked away, flattening out and returning to formation, their glow increasing. Suddenly, two similar objects raced under the DC-4 to join the others, their glow the brightest of all the objects. Once these two disks caught up with the others, all eight disks went dark. When the glow reappeared, the objects were in line, heading west. They climbed to a higher altitude and vanished into the night. This entire encounter lasted about 15 seconds. The objects were estimated traveling at 200 miles a minute. During the investigation, there were five jet aircraft to be found in the vicinity of Langley Air Force Base, but were ruled out as being the cause of the sightings. One theory proposed during the investigation to explain the sighting as a combination of temperature inversions and lights on the ground reflecting in the atmosphere. But these were experienced pilots we were dealing with who had likely seen temperature inversions and knew how lights on the ground looked from the air. So I doubt that this was an actual explanation for the sighting. The final sightings of July 1952 are the most well known. This sighting spans a two-week period and is known as the Washington UFO Incident or the Washington Flap or the Washington National Airport sightings. Despite being named for Washington, much of the activity was reported from Washington National Airport in Virginia. Though technically marked explained by Project Blue Book, I wanted to include it in this episode because of the national attention that it received. At 11.40 p.m. Saturday, July 19th, an air traffic controller at Washington National Airport Edward Nugent spotted seven objects on radar located 15 miles south-southwest of Washington DC. No known aircraft were in the area and and the objects were not following any established flight paths. Nugent's superior Harry Barnes, a senior air traffic controller at the airport, watched the objects on Nugent's radar. Barnes later wrote that the movement of the objects were completely radical compared to those of ordinary aircraft. You may also remember Harry Barnes from the uh, Willis Sperry incident of 1950. Barnes had two other controllers check Nugent's radar for a malfunction, but none was found. Barnes called National Airport's other radar center. Howard Cockland, the controller at the radar center, confirmed that he also had objects on the radar. Cockland said that he could see one of the objects from the window of the control tower. He described it as a bright orange light. More objects appeared on radar. When the objects moved over the White House and the U.S. Capitol building, Barnes called Andrews Air Force Base, located 10 miles from National Airport. Andrews reported no unusual activity on radar, but an airman called into the base's control tower to report the sighting of a strange object. Airman William Brady, who was in the tower at Andrews, saw an object that appeared as an orange ball of fire. He said it was unlike anything he had seen before. The object took off at an unbelievable speed. As Andrews was seeing strange objects, Washington National was having new sightings. On one of the runways at National Airport, S.C. Pierman, a Capital Airlines pilot, was waiting to take off. After spotting what he believed to be a meteor, he was told that the control tower was monitoring unknown objects closing in on his position. Pierman observed six objects he described as white, tailless, fast-moving lights over a 14-minute period. Pierman was in radio contact with Barnes during these sightings, and Barnes reported that the sightings corresponded with a pip we could see near his plane. When he reported that the light streaked off at a high speed, it disappeared on our scope. At 3 a.m., shortly before two fighter jets scrambled out of Newcastle Air Force Base in Delaware, arrived in Washington, D.C., all of the objects vanished from radar at National Airport. When the jets ran low on fuel and left the area, the objects returned, causing Barnes to believe that the objects were monitoring radio traffic and behaving accordingly. The objects were last detected by radar at 5.30 a.m. Around sunrise, a civilian radio engineer by the name of E.W. Chambers observed five huge disks circling in a loose formation. They then tilted upward and left on a steep ascent. During this sighting, the supervisor of Project Blue Book, U.S. Air Force Captain Edward Ruppelt, was actually in D.C. However, he did not hear about the sightings until Monday, July 21st, when he read about it in a local paper. Frustrated by his inability to investigate the sightings in real time, he returned to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Ohio, the headquarters of Project Blue Book. But before he left, he spoke with Air Force radar specialist Captain Roy James, who suggested that unusual weather conditions could have caused the unknown radar targets. Yes, again, we hear the temperature inversion cover story. On the following weekend, July 26th, the 27th, unidentified objects reappeared on the radars of Andrews Air Force Base and National Airport. A Master Sergeant at Andrews saw the objects and later said that the lights did not have the characteristics of shooting stars. There were no trails and they traveled faster than any shooting star I have ever seen. The press spokesman for Project Blue Book, Albert Chop arrived at National Airport and prevented several reporters' requests to photograph the radar screens before he joined the radar center personnel. By 9.30 p.m., the radar center was picking up unknown objects in every sector. At times, the objects moved slowly. At others, they reversed direction and moved across the radar at speeds estimated to be 7,000 miles per hour. Needless to say, this is faster than any known aircraft at the time. At 11.30 p.m., two jet fighters from Newcastle Air Force Base arrived in Washington. Captain John McHugo, the flight leader, was directed toward the radar blips but saw nothing. However, his wingman, Lieutenant William Patterson, did see four white glows and chased them. After giving chase, the glows surrounded his plane. Patterson asked the control tower at National Airport what he should do. According to CHOP, the press spokesman for Project Blue Book, the tower's answer was stunned silence. The four objects then sped away and disappeared. Let's focus on that for a second. Four UFOs were chased by a U.S. Air Force F-94 fighter jet. The Lockheed F-94 Starfire was the first U.S. Air Force fighter jet equipped with an afterburner. It had a maximum speed of 640 miles per hour and couldn't overtake these objects. And when those objects surrounded the fighter jet, the radar tower couldn't give instructions on what action the pilot should take. This incident was detailed in the Washington Post on July 28, 1952 with the headline, Saucer Outran Jet Pilot Reveals. After midnight on July 27th, Major Dewey Fournette, Project Blue Book's liaison at the Pentagon, and Lieutenant John Holcomb, a U.S. Navy radar specialist, arrived at the National Airport Radar Center. During the night, Lieutenant Holcomb received a call from the Washington National Weather Station and was informed that a slight temperature inversion was present over Washington, but Holcomb thought the inversion wasn't strong enough to create the radar signals. Fournette relayed that all in the radar room were convinced that the signals were most likely caused by solid metallic objects. On July 29, 1952, Air Force Major Generals John Samford, U.S. Air Force Director of Intelligence, and Roger Ramey, U.S. Air Force Director of Operations, held a press conference to discuss the sightings. It was the largest Pentagon press conference since World War II. Samford declared that the visual sightings over Washington could be explained as misidentified aerial phenomena, such as stars or meteors. He also said that temperature inversions were the explanation for the radar targets. Samford also admitted that there had been hundreds of contacts where U.S. Air Force fighters intercepted UFOs, but said all were fruitless. Project Blue Book labeled the radar objects cited in Washington as mirage effects caused by double inversion and the visual sightings as meteors coupled with the normal excitement of the witnesses. The next case is from Danville, in the south central part of the state, almost to the North Carolina border. This happened on August 26, 1954. The report was made by a minister who saw two objects, elliptical with a dome on top, about 20 feet by 8 feet, silver with an orange glow from either end that expanded about 10 feet. He saw the objects hovering side by side, then climbed vertically at a high rate of speed until they disappeared from sight. He noted that the orange globe became brighter as they climbed, similar to the 1952 sighting near Langley Air Force Base. This sighting lasted for over two minutes. The next case is from January 23, 1965, in Williamsburg. The reported witness reported that his 1964 Cadillac stalled right before he spotted the objects hovering about 75 feet off the ground before disappearing into the sky. This object was described as 70 to 80 feet in height, 25 feet in diameter at the top, and 10 feet in diameter at the bottom. Color was described as metallic gray with a red-orange glow on one side, a bluish glow on the other. Another witness also reported his car stalling. This report gives us our highest level sighting on the Hynek scale. This scale was developed by J. Allen Hynek, an astronomer and scientific advisor to Project Blue Book. The system was made famous by Steven Spielberg in the 1977 classic Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The Williamsburg case is an example of a close encounter of the second kind where there are physical effects related to the sighting of an object. In this case, it's two cars stalling out. I will also note the similarities between this craft and some of the others cited in Virginia. The same red orange glow is present with many of the unexplained sightings in Virginia. After this sighting on December 30th, Ernest Gaiman, a professor at Eastern Mennonite College, checked the site with a Geiger counter and found high concentrations of radiation. The Air Force came to the area on January 12, 1965, to investigate the soil for radiation. They found no evidence of a craft landing in the field, no radiation, and no landing depressions. But this was also some time after the original sighting. On April 21 and 22, 1967, in South Hill, in the southern part of the state, at least a dozen people reported UFO activity, including one who saw a 16 to 17 foot tall metallic object take off from the road he was driving on. At approximately 9 p.m. on April 21st, Clifton Crowder had been working late at the Mobile Chemical Company warehouse. After closing and locking the warehouse doors, he got into his car and drove a few hundred feet to the tarred road that ran through town. When I got on this hard surface road, I saw this object which appeared to be approximately 12 feet in diameter, he explained. It was circular and made of some form of metal. It was sitting up on, th- on legs about three feet high. Crowder remarked that the UFO was 16 or 17 feet tall and was shaped like a water tank standing on end. No windows or f- other physical characteristics were observed. The object was resting on the surface of the road, and he was able to drive within 200 feet or so of the craft. To get a better look he turned on his high beam lights and saw the object for about five seconds. Then it took off just like a flash. Crowder watched as the road burned after the UFO took off. He lost sight of the object when it got to an altitude of about 200 to 300 feet. Crowder wasn't the only one who saw the UFO around this time. A tobacco farmer said he watched a bright light rise from the ground and lit up a whole tree just as bright as day. On the road where the UFO was sitting and took off from, there was a wide burned out spot, and around the burn were four holes that measured three-quarter inch deep and half-inch wide. It was noted that the spacing of the holes was exact. Members of the Virginia Highway Department took core samples of the burned area and the non-burned area of the road and the holes, but the results were inconclusive. An additional setting report came from several members of the Fort Lee Fire Department. Fort Lee, a U.S. Army installation, is about 50 miles north of South Hill. They witnessed two blinking and revolving red lights for about five to six minutes. One witness in this group said he and others saw the lights coming at them at 9.15 p.m. The lights then suddenly stopped, turned at a 90-degree angle, hovered, then slowly disappeared to the northeast. The following evening, April 22nd, more sightings were reported in South Hill. It's not surprising that people were watching the skies the evening following a UFO sighting in a small town. Around 8.30 p.m., police dispatcher Norman Ball and four others observed a pinkish ball of fire they estimated to be the size of a grapefruit at treetop level. The object was stationary at first, then it slowly moved and disappeared behind a hill. At about 9.45 p.m., police chief Bill Williams and several of his officers saw strange lights that spread through the area like lightning. Williams reported that three lights rose from the ground very quickly and were followed by two more lights. All five of the lights formed a diamond formation. One light left the formation and moved very fast toward the northeast and away from South Hill. While watching the UFOs, Chief Williams shifted his patrol car into high gear and followed the lights at speeds up to 75 miles per hour. He nervously watched as the diamond formation dipped up and down, occasionally disappearing behind trees and rising up again. Then it instantly turned and headed back toward the town. Suddenly, they came to an abrupt halt and remained stationary. Williams said he had never seen anything like it. The lights were still hovering in the night sky when he left the scene. Around five South Hill residents with CB radios in their cars saw what they described as strange lights. The CBers had what they said was a running commentary on the sightings back and forth between them. Other witnesses reported seeing a red ball that changed to an orange yellow color. The unidentified object descended to treetop level, then disappeared below the trees. When it reappeared, it had apparently divided into two separate objects, one of which seemed to be far away from the other. Then the UFOs came back together and again disappeared below the trees. When they rose into the air once more, the witness saw what they described as three objects about one half the size of the full moon. The final sighting to discuss for this episode is from Crittenden, which is in the southeast part of the state. The sighting took place on January 17, 1969. The witness in this case was a six year test facility mechanic at NASA and has spent four years in the Navy as an electrician's mate. He was awakened by a strange electric motor sound. He looked out his bedroom window and saw several amber lights arranged in an elliptical shape. He said the lights moved in an up and down fashion and was moving about 30 miles per hour. He watched as it moved over his neighbor's yard, made a turn, and traveled out of sight. The encounter was thought to be a helicopter, but four of the five area airfields reported no helicopters in the area. You would also think that a former Navy electrician's mate and current test facility mechanic at NASA would know, even in the middle of the night, a helicopter from another type of aircraft. UFO sightings in Virginia are not relegated to the past. UFOs continue to be seen by both civilians and military personnel. The latest reports out of the Air Force of the Tic Tac UFOs that have recently been publicly acknowledged as Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon, or UAPs, have taken place on both coasts of the country, including right off the coast of Virginia. On May 30th, 2019, the Virginian pilot published a story with the headline, UFOs in Virginia Beach? Navy pilots report sightings near Oceania. Lieutenants Ryan Graves and Danny Acoyne, both FA 18 Super Hornet pilots, reported they've seen objects they can't explain flying up to 30,000 feet. The strange objects appeared almost daily and had no exhaust or engine plumes. These things would be out there all day, Graves told the New York Times. Keeping an aircraft in the air requires a significant amount of energy. With the speeds we observed, 12 hours in the air is 11 hours longer than we'd expect. Graves' experience started in the summer of 2014 when the VFA-11 Red Rippers fighter squadron was training off the USS Theodore Roosevelt. The objects would appear at altitudes from sea level up to 30,000 feet, sometimes at hypersonic speeds. A coin told the Times he once set his plane to merge with an object. He should have been able to see it with his helmet camera, but could not, even though his radar told him it was there, the Times wrote. One pilot reported that an object almost collided with a pilot one day off the f- coast of Virginia Beach. The object, the pilot reported, looked like a sphere encasing a cube. It was also noted that the maneuvers made by the objects are impossible for humans to make. Sudden stops, starts, and turns at hypersonic speeds. It's possible that we will learn more about these incidents as time goes on and the activity continues, but the Air Force is acknowledging the phenomenon as real, and that's a big step toward more disclosure of the truth behind UFOs or UAPs. That concludes our look at some of the UFOs that have been sighted over Virginia. Our next episode will be our third and final episode in Virginia, this time taking a look at the monsters and cryptids around the state. This podcast is just getting started, and I hope you'll continue the journey with me as I wrap up Virginia and prepare to head to our next paranormal state. You can find new episodes of the Paranormal States of America as they are released on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Podbean. Follow the podcast on Facebook and Twitter at The Paranormal States of America. And if you like this show, please tell your friends about it. Until next time, I'm your host, John Devine, signing off from The Paranormal States of America. Thank you for listening.